Hosea chapter 9, and Hosea chapter 10. I know what you're thinking. That's a big passage for Brian to cover. Without a watch. I just had a watch donated. Your roast shall not burn. Hosea chapter 9 and 10 this morning. If you think that's something, wait until next week. It's Hosea 11 through 13. No joke. Hosea 9 and 10 this morning. Let's do this this morning. As we begin uh, the text, it's quite a long text. We will read it in sections as we take it apart. And uh, by God's grace, put it back together. Uh, I hate to have you stand for two chapters of reading uh, this morning. So let's take it as it comes to us this morning. As we look at this morning, the immediate effect of sin. Examine what happens when we stray from God. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help this morning. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask, as those who have gone before us ask, what we do not know, Father, teach us. What we do not have, give us. What we are not, make us. Through the power of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is worthy. Father, may we this morning be the recipients of hearing grace. Father, I think one of the most troubling themes in the life of the nation of Israel in their history is that they did not hear. Father, this morning I come burdened for my own soul, and I come burdened for the soul of your people, because too often, Father, we don't hear. We're too busy to hear. We're too busy interjecting what we think we know and what we understand because of our pride. We often don't hear the still small voice of a living and a holy God who is communing with us, teaching us, giving us, conforming us. So Father, this morning I ask for listening grace to the Word of God as applied by the Spirit of God, that You would transform our lives that Christ would be made famous, that Christ's name would be made worthy in our lives because of what we have heard and because of what the Spirit has empowered us to apply. Father, I pray this morning that as we look at the immediate consequence of sin in the life of Israel from these two chapters, Father, that the gospel would also be very real to us this morning, understanding that the immediate consequence of Christ's perfect obedience to You, Father, is also immediately applied in our justification as we believe, as we cast ourselves wholly on His mercy. That our justification is as immediate as a consequence of sin. 
So, Father, glorify yourself now through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you this morning to tell me what it is that you think about faith, you would probably go to Hebrews chapter 11 and you would tell me that faith is that vital, essential definition of those who are saved. And that is certainly true. We are saved by God's grace through the gift of faith in Christ alone. Plus nothing, minus nothing. And and we tend to view our faith, and rightly so, as that which saves. And, And we would probably all identify very strongly with the grace of God in faith, in salvation this morning. And so we would say we are people who are full of faith this morning. We have faith this morning in God's redemption of our souls. But can I ask us this question? How complete is your faith? You say, well, what do you mean? I'm not trusting in anything else but Christ to save me. But do you have faith in the promises of God, not only to save, but to judge? We are quick to say we believe that God will save those who repent of sin and cast themselves on the mercy of Christ. We believe that. I have faith in that. But do we also believe the promises of God, where God says, I will by no means clear the guilty? Do we hold that the holiness of God is such a massive theme in Scripture that the promises that He makes about punishment of a violation of His holiness are equally as important as His promises to say? You see, I believe that what we read in Hebrews this morning is true. That they did not come into the promised land because of their unbelief. Their unbelief was not only that God could and would redeem them, their unbelief was also that God would punish their idolatry. They did not believe that. They did not see that. They did not value that. And thus continued a pattern in Israel's history that they lacked the faith in the promises of God as it related to His holiness and their subsequent obedience to Him. And so we come this morning to Hosea chapter 9 and 10 and we find that because they lacked faith in all that God said, they sinned. And the consequences of that sin was immediate. It happened in their lifetime. And so let's look at the text this morning, beginning in verse 1 of Hosea chapter 9. And needing to move quickly, listen quickly. God says this to the nation of Israel. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exaltation like the nation's. For you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. 
You have loved harlots' earnings on every threshing floor. Threshing floor and wine press will not feed them, and new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. And in Assyria, they will eat unclean food. Now remember, Egypt used here as a, a metaphor of captivity. They're not going to the actual nation of Egypt. They're indeed going to Assyria, just as they had done in Egypt. Verse 4. They will not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please Him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat it will be defiled, for their bread will be for themselves alone. It will not enter into the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will take over their treasures of silver. Thorns will be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of retribution have come. Let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet. Yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways and there is only hostility in the house of his God. They have gone deep in depravity as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sin. And so we find that God makes promises to the nation of Israel that they tended to think it would seem that, yeah, 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 you don't like it. We understand that. We get that. If we sin, there's going to be punishment. There's going to be retribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get that, God. And so for generation after generation, they began to harden themselves to God's promises. They did not take him seriously, so that in Hosea's generation, the sin had reached its apex, and they continued to kick the proverbial can down the road, not believing that God would actually do something about it. Think of it this way. They were living on spiritual credit. We'll do this sin now, and somebody down the road will pay for it. After all, our fathers did not pay. So why should we take you seriously, Yahweh? We'll just kick the can down the road. We'll continue to do what pleases us. And yet in their generation, God would not leave sin untouched. Let's examine what God allowed them to go through. Number one, they lost their joy. They lost their joy. What does a lack of faith produce? A lack of faith ultimately produces a lack of joy. If we are not filled with joy, one thing is clear. We are not people of faith. God, faith in the promises of God, produces genuine joy. And here, God not only says you don't have joy, God forbids their joy. In verse 1, he says, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exaltation like the nations around you. In other words, don't enjoy your sin. I'm not going to allow this. See, the pagans were happy. They were thrilled. They were living a life of of ecstasy, worshiping the, the gods of the Baals. 
And God says to Israel, it's not going to be that way with you. I won't allow it. I won't allow it. Don't exalt like the nation. You have played the harlot. You are my people. By the way, uh, Israel, remember your covenant promise to me. All that God has spoken. Exodus 19.8. We will do. And yet they did not. And God says, it's not like the pagans. The pagans never had a covenant with me. I never made promises to the pagans, but I did to you and you responded to those promises and you are different. You cannot do this. And so they did. They forsook the God of their covenant. And they went and they began to indulge in things that could not produce joy for them. Look what they did. They loved the harlot's earnings on the Threshing floor, every threshing floor, threshing floor and wine press will not feed them. New wine will fail them. Remember that the people that they were learning their paganism from were people who were worshiping Baal uh, through uh, agricultural productivity. One of the ways that you invoked Baal was through illicit physical fornication in order to get him to bless you with new crops and growth and fertilization of the crops and all of these things. And so they turned in Hosea's day, they turned the threshing floors, the grain silos, if you will, where they brought the grain to be threshed, they they turned those into brothels. And there Israel was found on every threshing floor, trying to find happiness, trying to find joy. God says, I won't let it happen. You should not be there in the first place. You have played the part of the harlot. You have forsaken me and my law. You have not believed my commandments. Look what he says. Everything that that this cult produces will not make you happy. I'm going to rob you of any false joy for your own good so that you'll learn that true joy only comes from me. Brothers and sisters, idolatry never produces the joy that only God can give. It never does. It can't. It's incapable. It's dead. It's man-made. So if the idols are man-made, then you can only get what man can give. So in Hosea's day, that's what they began to experience. But then look at verses 3 through 6. God says, not only is there going to be an innate loss of joy, a derived loss of joy where nothing will satisfy you. I will not allow it. The new wine is going to fail you. You can try to get drunk and forget your promises on, or, or my promises on, on the wine of the of the, the grape crops that you're crushing, and I won't allow it. You, I just won't let it happen. And then on top of that, in verses 3 through 6, we find that, that God gives them a foreign exile. They won't remain in the Lord's land. What you did have, I'm going to take away. And we've experienced that, right? As children, we, we probably all remember Mom and dad give us something and, and we're dissatisfied with that thing. We complain about, well, this isn't really what I wanted. I wanted, you know, the deluxe version. I didn't just want this. Well, fine. 
If, if, if you're not going to be happy with this, I'll just take this back. And we've experienced that, haven't we? And God says, look, Israel, if you're not going to remember my law and adherence to my law in my land that I gave you, then I'll just take that away. I'll just I'll help you remember how good you had it under me by sending you somewhere else. For a period of time. And so they did. They went into Assyria. But notice what happens once they get to Assyria. God begins to shake things up a little bit. He says, and in Assyria, you're going to eat unclean food. What's God saying? You cannot come to my presence. You're going to be defiled. You're going to go to a place, and in that place, you're going to defile yourself with the unclean food. This is the same thing that Daniel experienced in the Babylonian captivity, where Daniel and his friends made a request of the king, of the prince of the eunuchs, that they might not defile themselves with the king's meat. This is very important in their life. Because uncleanness was something that separated you from the fellowship of God because you, that day you were ostracized from the temple. You were ostracized from the worship of God. You were ostracized from the sacrifice. And God says, because you are unclean, you cannot have fellowship with me. If you were a leper, you were put outside the camp. God says, I'm going to send you to Assyria. I'm going to separate me and you. You're not going to be able to eat the clean food. But not only that, look what happens. This becomes a progressively worsening situation. They will not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please Him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat of it will be defiled. Again, there is that uncleanness. For the bread will be for themselves alone. It will not enter into the house of the Lord. What is God telling them? God says to them, in this land all sacrifices cease. Now think about it with me. What happens when the sacrifices cease? You're in big trouble. Your means of relationship with God have ended. No more sacrifice. It's interesting that he points out that the first sacrifice that was to be seized, uh, to be stopped was the drink offering. We don't know a lot about the drink offering except what the book of Numbers gives us. But we do know this, that the drink offering was an offering that was offered daily along with the continual burnt offering. And the drink offering was given along with uh, the grain offering as something to please God, something to gratify Him. It was an offering of joy. It was an offering of purity because it had to be, uh, when they poured out the, the wine for the drink offering, it had to be strong drink as it was commanded because strong drink was pure. There's no bacteria in it. It was, a, it was a, something that God said, I want you to use strong drink for this to symbolize the purity of your worship. Strong drink, germs don't grow in there. Kind of thankful, you know, we don't do um, communion uh, like they do over in Europe. Went to Belarus last year and we got to that first church. They were so excited to have us. They said, 
We're so glad you're here today. We're doing communion today. We're so glad that you come today to do communion. One cup. 200 people. One dirty handkerchief between every drink. (laughs) So thank God they use real wine to kill the germs on the cup. Otherwise, I'd probably be full of who knows how many diseases today. But this offering was to be something of strong drink to, to kill the, 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 the growth in it. And God says it represents not only joy to me as something that is always before me, but it is something that represents purity before me. And Israel, you will not be allowed to offer this anymore. You are not pure. I am not satisfied with you. No more drink offering. As we bring that beautiful offering, that drink offering, that continual burnt offering forward into the New Testament, we begin to understand that what it was was a picture of Christ who now day and night stands before God for us as the ultimate sacrifice to appease God for our sins. And God says, that's done, Israel. Because of your sin, I'm cutting you off. You cannot come into my presence and I am not satisfied with you. Think about that. That's bad news. Why did it happen? They lacked faith in God that yielded obedience. They didn't believe His promises of judgment until God finally has to step in and it all becomes immediate in their life. But now I want you to notice what else he goes on to say. He says, not only that, but you will eat mourner's bread. Now this is a specific type of bread that was to be eaten only at the time of death. It was an unclean bread. And when you ate this, you were declared unclean for a number of days. And God says, you're going to eat that. This is going to be part of your unclean food. Again, emphasizing the fact that they had been rejected from God's presence for the purpose of their own destruction. Verse 6, For behold, they will go because of destruction, for the purpose of destruction. Egypt, again, as a metaphor of Assyria, is going to gather them up. And Memphis, a city there in Egypt, is going to bury them. Weeds are going to overtake their treasures of silver. Everything they had worked so hard to accomplish was going to be laid waste. Thorns are going to be in their tents. Growing in your tent, I mean, I know how bad it irritates Nicole when I come back from somewhere and I've got grass burrs and my jeans are on my shoes and I walk in and I hear her scream a little while later, Ow! You didn't take your shoes off! So she pulls the grass burr out of her foot. And God says, it's going to be that. Because you lack faith in me that yielded in obedience. Thorns are going to not just be present in your tent, they're going to grow there. This is going to be a problem. Verses 7 through 9, he goes on to describe... They're not going to have any spiritual discernment. The days of punishment have come. He says, it's here. It's now. It's not for credit. It's not down the road. It's here. The days of retribution have come. My punishment has come. And let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented. 
By the way, God is not saying that Hosea was these things. Hosea was God's prophet. He is echoing what the people are saying about the prophet. The prophet's a fool. Spiritual authority are absolute fools. They're demented. Because of the grossness of your iniquity, you're going to say these things. And because your hostility is so great against me, you're going to reject the only way you have to know me. You say, well, how is, isn't that what they wanted? Yes, that's what they wanted. But it's Romans 1 here. They've reached the, 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 pro, the point in the cycle of rep, rep, reprobation where God finally just says, if that's what you want, then that's what you can have. You're going you're gonna to call me and you're going to call my mouthpiece demented because of the things that they're saying to you. That's how far they were in sin that they were calling good, evil, and evil good. They had no spiritual discernment. Sin had blinded them so deeply that they did not even notice it. But notice what he says. Verse 9, they've gone deep into their depravity. They needed someone else to, to pull them out. They were so far gone that they could not save themselves. Brothers and sisters, the only way that we have any hope of coming out of such a spiritual condition is if God reaches down and pulls us out. And that's what we're coming to in chapter 14 where God promises the blessed news of redemption. It's God who comes and rescues us from ourselves. It's God who comes and rescues us from our sin. We cannot pull ourselves out. We are so deep in our depravity that we call good evil and evil good. We call the prophet demented. This is Israel's condition. Verse 9 does not end well for them. Look what it says. He will remember their iniquity. Don't you know there were people in Israel's day who thought, oh God, if maybe he'll forget. Maybe he won't remember. They didn't have hope in Christ. They didn't have hope in the promises of God to save because they didn't have faith in the promises of God to judge. And so the best they could do is hope that he wouldn't remember. And God reminds them, he says, I don't forget. And I won't forget. And I will punish you for your iniquity. But then God begins to take it from a national level, now down to a personal level. And he begins in verses 10 through 16 to talk about one of the most grievous things that a culture can experience, and that is a declining birth rate. He says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. No, by the way, grapes don't grow naturally in the wilderness. Somebody has to plant those grapes there. And here is God saying, as I looked at the nation of Israel, they were to me like a vineyard in the middle of the wilderness. How did it get there? He put it there. 
And he said, and I'm remembering what I did for them. I, I found them like grapes in the wilderness. That it was the work of me. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its, early, in its first season, going all the way back to Abraham. Here's Abraham, uh, 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 an idol worshiper from a tradition that offered children as sacrifice. And God calls him out, makes him as his own vineyard in the wilderness. That generations later, as they came to the place of Baal Peor, they devoted themselves to shame. In other words, to idol worship. And as for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. Now, what was the glory of Israel? If we go back to the Abrahamic covenant, you remember what God told Abraham. Here's how you're going to know the blessing is for you. Here's going to be the sign of my covenant promise to you. You are going to multiply. And your descendants are going to become like the sand of the sea, like the stars in the sky. I'm going to bless you with an expanding nation. And now look what he says in verse 11. There will be no birth, there will be no pregnancy, and there will be no conception. What a, what a grieving thing that is. When we read the book of Proverbs, we find that one of the most grievous conditions that a woman can face is a barren womb. And God says, that's going to be your punishment, Israel. To cry, to weep, to feel the pain of a mother, of a woman who cannot conceive. That's your judgment. And the blessing of an expanding nation of children, I'm going to do away with that. But then it gets worse. As we move down through verse 12, look what he says. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. I'm going to kill the children that you've already had. I'm going to bereave you. I'm going to cause grief. I'm going to take away the life. This is repeated in the, the coming chapters next Sunday where God says, I'm going to allow the Assyrians to come in and slaughter your children. Because of your sin, the, the, the children are going to die. Not a man is left. As we all know, when populations experience declining or get out of balance either way, whether an overdominance of males or overdominance of females, the birth rate naturally goes into a tailspin. China finds themselves in this situation now. He says, This is what's going to happen. There's not going to be a man left, then reproduction falls off even more. Ephraim, as I have Seen is planted as a, in a pleasant meadow like Tyre, but Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. They're so depraved, God says, I'm going to allow them. They're, they're so depraved, they're going to begin to take part in the practice of Molech worship, sacrificing their own children. You want your idols? You can have your idols, but you have your idols. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to lose your own children. One of the interesting things that's going on, you all follow the news in Syria, and I guarantee you more of this is going to come about as they're destroying these buildings, as they're having to dig up and clean up. But not many years ago, about a decade ago, as they 
expanded the runway in Damascus at the international airport there. They came onto a pit full of children's bones where they had been burned. That's the region of Tyre and Sidon. God says, that's what happens. You don't have faith in my promises. You don't have faith in my judgment. That's what you end up doing. You do stuff like that. Verse 14, give them, O Lord. Hosea interjects an imprecatory prayer here. And we hear Hosea speak now and he says this, Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Give them a womb that is incapable of producing children and give them a body that is incapable of sustaining children. To drive them back to you. Now we come to verse 15. God says again, all their evil is at Gilgal. Now Gilgal was one of the centers for, perhaps the main center for their idol worship. And he says, everything that I, that I despise about them could be seen at Gilgal. You want to know what the problem is? Just go to Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Now we need to stop and we need to back up and we need to go back to the beginning of the book of Hosea. And we need to say, does God really hate his children? God has made a covenant promise, has He not? And God has promised to save them, and God has promised to redeem them, and God has promised to keep them. So what do we do with verse 15? And by the way, brothers and sisters, you will read things in the Bible when you read this that it seems like God is vacillating. But He's not. If we go back to the beginning of the book of Hosea, you remember Hosea immoral wife had two children and why did he name them lo ami and lo ruhama i am not your god you are not my people and i do not love you anymore but wait a minute god you made a promise to israel you made a covenant with them do you really hate them now do you really not love them anymore are you going to break your promises and we found out you remember all the way back at the beginning of this that god does not hate them but god has changed the way he loves them god no longer is going to love israel by blessing them god is going to love israel by disciplining them so that they return And it's going to look like hatred compared to how he loved him before. But God is not going to forsake his people. But his love is going to come across as hate for a time because of its severity and because of its disciplined nature. I came to hate them there. Lo Ami. Lo Ruhama. His turning away of favor would look like hate. Why? Is God unjust in doing this? No, He's just in doing this. Why? Because of the wickedness of their deeds. Why were they doing the wicked deeds? Because they didn't believe God when He said, don't do them. It's a lapse of faith that produces obedience. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels.
Brothers and sisters, we sin. We become rebels when we don't really believe God. You have a child, and the child sins. The child does something that you tell them not to do. And they continue to do it repeatedly. There's a couple of reasons they do that, probably not the least of which is that they don't believe you'll do anything about it. Consistency in in parenting is is paramount. You see these kids and their parents say, I'm going to count to three, and if you don't stop by the time I count to three, then you're going to get a spanking. One, two, three, I mean it. Four, five, six, now I mean it. And that kid's sitting there going, "Uh, yeah, right. You're not going to do anything. Or even worse, a child who, uh, when their parent turns their back, does the thing they're not supposed to do. Why do they do that? Because they believe the parent does not see. What's the real problem? The real problem is a lack of faith. The real problem is a lack of belief and thus obedience to their parents. I believe mom and dad will do something about this if I continue to do this action or this attitude. I believe that that mom and dad will find out about this if I take the cookie out of the cookie jar, even though they're not looking right now. That's our problem when we sin. We either don't believe God will do it because he doesn't view it as serious, or we don't believe he really sees. This was Israel's problem. Their princes had become rebels. They had dismissed God. And so because of that, Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to Him. By the way, when the Bible speaks of listening, the Bible is not talking about an auditory function. The Bible is talking about an auditory function that yields in heart change and life change. They have not listened to him and they will be wanderers among the nation. What made Israel unique from the tribes of their day in the Middle East? They weren't nomads. They were a nation of cities and castles and fortified places in the midst of people who were absolute nomads. And God says, now you're going to become just like the people that you despise all around you. No home. Wandering. Shifting. Now, he goes into verse ten, or chapter 10 just quickly. He says, you're going to live a meaningless life. As they begin chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made, the richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. There it is. Their heart lacks faith. Because of that, now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Now think about this. For generation after generation after generation, Israel had worked hard to build these altars. They had given their money. 
They had given their time. They had given their energy into building these majestic centers for pagan worship. And it meant everything to them. They were known for this. The whole world knew about Gibeah and Gilgal and all of the other places. And God says, now let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to come in and everything you've done, I'm going to destroy it. Now tell me, what is your life worth? Everything you've poured yourself into is now gone. You lived a meaningless life, Israel. You took all the treasures that I gave you and you absolutely squandered them. There are people that we know whose very life, whose very meaning of life is tied to their financial standing. And when the stock market falls and it crashes and the 401ks go to nothing, they are absolutely devastated. And they think that their life has been an abject failure. Why? Because that thing meant more to them than anything. And it's gone. The meaning of your life is gone. God says, that's what I'm going to do to you, Israel. I'm going to take away the things that meant most to you. Because you lived a faithless life. But then in verses 3 through 10, look what happens. We find that their arrogance, their pride, was soon turned to humiliation and judgment. God, when when He says He will cause the proud to fall, He's not just talking. Proverbs 16 and 18, pride goes before destruction is not a cute little saying to be cross-stitched and put on the wall of our home. It's a reality. God will humble the proud. And Israel learns this the hard way. They had a proud rejection of God. Look in verse 3. Surely now they will say, we have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. Now, wait a minute, this is a massive shift. You remember just earlier throughout the book, we have found that they were trying to worship Yahweh and the idols. They were at least claiming to worship God. And now they're saying, we have no king and we don't reverence the Lord. Their pride is taking on an outward manifestation. Now, they're not even pretending. And as for the king, what can he do for us? They are mocking God. They're mocking God to his face. One of the most difficult times if we understand that God is not incapable of emotion. We, as we read through redemptive history, we understand that what for God must have been in a very difficult time occurs in 1 Samuel when the people begin to clamor for a king. And God says to Samuel, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. I'll give them their earthly king. Was that God's plan? Was that God's ideal that they would have an earthly king? No, God had designed for him to be their only king. But Israel wanted so bad to be like everybody else around them. Well, they've got a king. Well, Egypt's got a king. Well, the Amorites have a king. Well, the Assyrians have a king. God, we want a king too. It's not fair that we're the only nation without a king that we can touch and see. 
And they whined and whined until God finally says, fine, at the end of the judges, you can have your king. Remember how Judges closes? He gave them the desire of their heart. But he sent leanness to their souls and everybody did what was right in their own sight. Here's your king. By the way, the kings of Israel led them away from God. That's all the kings of Israel ever did was lead them astray. As a whole, he had flashes of brilliance interspersed in there, but as a whole, they just led them away. So they proudly reject God. They say, we have no king. We do not revere the Lord. They're mocking God. And then in verse 4, they speak of the earthly kings. They speak with mere words, with worthless oaths. They make covenants, God says. They Israel, remember, they got in a desperate place and in a desperate hour they went to the king of Assyria and made a covenant with him and put all their trust in him. And he says, that's worthless. In verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria, inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of beth Now, apparently this was the most well-known golden calf, if you would, in Israel. It's the place every, it was the Mount Rushmore where everybody went to see that calf. Indeed, its people will mourn for it, for its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. God says, I'm going to bring it down too. I'm going to crush it. The greatest, most magnificent demonstration of their idolatry, I'm going to crush. Verses 6 through 8, we find that the foreign kings, starting with the king of Assyria, would come down and wreak havoc and loot the land. The thing itself will be carried to Assyria, the idol there, the calf at Beth Haven, as a tribute to King Jerob, the king of Assyria. Ephraim will be seized with shame. Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. Also, the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars, and they will say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. You see what's happening? Israel is so depraved. Israel has been so faithless in God. They have rejected God to the point that now their judgment is beginning to come. And when the judgment comes, instead of repenting, they say, just kill us. The the nation had become suicidal. That's how demented they were in their thinking because they had rejected God. And rather than repent and return to God, they say, we'd rather die. Now, does that make sense? It's absolutely absurd, but that's what they want. And Jesus himself says, using this as an illustration in the New Testament, there is coming a day when, because my wrath falls, the citizens of this world will say, let the mountains fall on us. In the midst of judgment, it would be better to die than to repent. That is what faithless, God-rejecting living will bring ultimately. Is that kind of insanity? That's tragic. In verse 8, the last part of verse 8, we see the extent of that suffering. In verse 10, we find a double judgment. When it is my desire, I will chastise them. 
the peoples will be gathered against them when they are bound for their double guilt. Their guilt would reap a double judgment. We find this in Isaiah 40, that this would occur as well. Jeremiah 16, Jeremiah mentions a double portion of judgment that would fall. What is God's purpose in doing this? What's the God, what is God's purpose in bringing about immediate judgment that they and that we can feel in our lives? When God brings you to the point where your joy is lost, when He removes the idols, when He crushes you, when He humbles you, why is God doing that? Well, we find gospel hope in the last four verses of this chapter. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have, here's the concept of faith again, you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. Therefore, a tumult will arise among your peoples and all your fortresses will be destroyed. And Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. At the dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Why? For the purpose of righteousness. See, God's going to bring Israel home. He's going to remove the ease in verse 11 that had allowed her to stray. Ephraim is a trained heifer. She loves to thresh. Now listen, uh, you had cattle in Israel's day that did one of two things. They either plowed the field under one of those big, heavy wooden yokes. You've seen those, right? We, We haven't in real life probably, but we've seen people on the movies using the old black and white movies, right? The guy's out plowing his field with these oxen and these big, heavy wooden yokes. Or the cattle uh, was, was lightly tied to a pole in a threshing floor, and they would bring the grain in, and this cow would just walk in circles, just kind of turning this little stone, while his brothers and sisters are out in the field pulling this yoke. And which do you think is easier? Just turn the little wheel, right? Not only that, there is all kinds of grain on the floor. You don't even have to go look for food. You just stop at any point along the circle and you can eat all you want. I mean, the threshing floor was, was uh, an easy assignment for an ox. Look what he says in verse 11. I'm going to remove that. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. Well, no doubt, she's had life really easy. But I'm coming and I'm going to put over her fair neck a yoke. Uh-oh. She's being reassigned to the pasture. She's not going to thresh anymore. She's going to plow. And it's going to hurt. And it's going to be painful. But I'm doing this so that she will sow with a view to righteousness. You see, in the threshing floor, you don't sow anything. You're just simply dealing with reaped material. But he's going to take Israel out. He's going to put her in bondage so that she will learn to sow with a mind to righteousness, with a mind to redemption that comes through faith-filled obedience to God. 
That's going to bring her back. She's going to reap in accordance with kindness. Whose kindness? God's. Was Israel a kind nation? No. They were as brutal and as wicked as the rest. God says, I'm going to bring her back. <clears throat> I'm going to take her out of the ease that has produced this. I'm going to put her under the yoke of bondage so that as she is under that yoke, she will learn to sow with a view to righteousness. She will learn to honor me. She will learn to turn back to me. Therefore, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. Was Israel going to make themselves righteous? By no stretch of the imagination. The law never made anyone righteous. The law revealed their sin. The law drives them to a righteous Savior. But the law never made anyone righteous. And he says, she's going to do this until she's broken, until she's humbled, and until I come and I rain righteousness on her as she turns back to me. This doesn't happen through a rebellious heart. It happens through a faith-filled heart. Faith not only in the promise of God who will save, but faith in the promise of God who will judge. Brothers and sisters, our faith must be well-informed. Our faith must be biblical and robust. And as we are communicating the gospel to other people, as we are sharing the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners, we must also convince them, share with them the faith that we believe that God will judge sinners too. We must begin with that. We must begin with a holy God whose law they have violated before they can appreciate the salvation of His Son who comes to remove that judgment. There is immediate judgment for sin. We will reap personally the consequence of a life that lacks faith in the promises of God. Whether it's a promise to judge or promise to save. We must be people of faith. Consistently. Consistent faith in every aspect of our life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would be endued with faith from on high. Father, we are faithless people. Your disciples recognized this when they cried out, Oh, increase our faith. Lord, this morning we ask that you would increase our faith. Father, that we would not only claim to believe you, to believe the positive promises, the, the promises of redemption, Father, but that we would believe and have faith in the judgment of God as well, the holiness of God against sin, that we would believe there as well. Israel did not, and because they did not, they sinned. So, Father, make us faith-filled people that would guard us from sin. Father, may we find saving faith sweet because we have had faith in your judgment first. May the redemption of Christ be even more powerful in our lives because we have seen you judge in your word. So Lord, forgive our lack of faith. 
that you mean what you say. Forgive our lack of faith when we sin thinking that you don't see or you don't care. Father, cause us in faith to repent and turn so that we don't experience the immediate consequence of sin in our own lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior.